Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. My name is Ben Hunter, and I am joined by uh, two wonderful people today. Um, the first is my boss, Joe Lewin, who is the head of trade books at Booktopia. And we are absolutely delighted to be sitting with, well, over the uh, airwaves, Kate Grenville. How are you, Kate? It's, I'm very well, and it's lovely to be here with you. I've been depending on Booktopia during lockdown, so thank you for all that you do. Oh, well, it's a, You're very it's an welcome. pleasure. Um, the first thing um, Joe and I wanted to say is, is congratulations on such a fascinating new novel, A Room Made of Leaves. We have both read early copies and we just adore this thing. Well done. Oh, thank you very much. It's very good to have it out there. It's been a long time coming. It's taken me, oh, something like 20 years to actually get wow. this. From wow, 20 years in the process. Pretty much. I mean, 20 years ago, I read uh, a, a little thing, uh, one of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, and I thought, oh, I think there might be a book here. And from that moment, when you stand in the shower and you see this fabulous little bit of perfect uh, work, to now has taken me 20, 20 years, more or less. A lot of books in between, of course. Yeah, you, you spent some time away from fiction. Um, your last two books have been um, in the realm of non-fiction. Has, has this been... Uh, has has Kate has um has MacArthur been too much of a, a a challenge that you've had to sort of put it on the back burner, or is it uh, just something that's uh, um, been brewing over a long time? Uh, what's what what uh, drew you back to write fiction again, and um, why and what, why Elizabeth MacArthur as well? And possibly why what took me so long? <laughs> <laughs> um, Elizabeth MacArthur because she's a character that some. Some people know about, um, she's a, uh, just to give some background, late 18th century, she came out from England with her husband when, um, you know, the colony of Australia was only two years old and her husband was a soldier. So they came out and for quite a while, she was the only kind of genteel woman apart from the wife of the uh, clergyman. And John MacArthur was a very nasty piece of work, basically, a, a kind of a ruthless bully. Uh, and she um he got into such trouble that he was sent twice back to england to uh, defend himself in court and during each of those very long absences elizabeth macarthur kept the enormous family sheep business going and she is probably in fact responsible much more than john for breeding the australian merino although of course john takes all the credit so well, what interested me about her is that for that time it was really unusual for a woman uh, first of all, to be able to do that, most women just were supposed to sit at home and do their embroidery, um, and also to be able to. It would have been incredibly difficult. So I thought there's got to be a remarkable story here about a remarkable woman who kind of came out of the shadows when her husband was away and managed to do astonishing things. And what a lonely life it must have been as well, being the, you know, the only woman of your class in the whole uh, colony. Look, I think it must have been, although I suspect um, she might not have been able to have, I mean, the colony was full of women. It's just yeah. that these ones were either convicts or of a lower rank. But, you know, Elizabeth MacArthur was a farmer's daughter and she was no snob. Mm. So I think that actually kind of behind the scenes, she probably had quite a nice um, network of, of female friends. It would have been lonely, but possibly not quite as isolated as we like to assume. One of the problems with 
working out what those women's lives were really like is that they couldn't leave any record of what it was really like. Um, letters were very public things. They were not private the way they are now. So she, she had to pretend in her letters and journals also were quite public. So all we have is the um, the words that these women were able to leave behind that were heavily self-censored. So that's really uh, what got me interested in the book, apart from the character of Elizabeth MacArthur, this whole idea of um, a, a hidden world, a silenced world, which incorporates the women of the past, and in fact many of the women of the present are still kind of silenced by social or, and legal uh, things. Um, and of course in the case of Australia, uh, many of the stories about the Indigenous people have also been silent. Mm. So once I started thinking about it, uh, although Elizabeth MacArthur is a fascinating individual, I realised that her story could stand in for a much bigger one. Mm. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. That idea of the uh, the very public letters of ladies of the time um, and, and even journals, you say, did that inspire you to... Um, cast this novel um, in the format of a uh, of a secret memoir, a hidden memoir. Yeah, that's exactly right. The thing is, I read a lot of Elizabeth MacArthur's letters, you know, 20 years ago, and there's something that doesn't quite make sense about them because her husband was, as I said, this awful man, and yet her letters are absolutely goody-two-shoes. You would think that her life was radiantly happy and that she was a devoted, pious wife. Now, I thought, actually, if he was that horrible to all the other people around him, which he is, which he was, uh, would he have been that different at home? I suspect not, knowing, you know, what we do about people. Uh, there's a sort of consistency. So I thought, okay, that means that the letters are, in a sense, they're fiction. Elizabeth MacArthur has written the fictional account of her life, the public one that was the one that she was kind of supposed to leave behind. Mm pious wife. So I thought, okay, this gives me an opportunity. I will sneak in and tell the real story. And of course, that will take the form of, it took me a while to kind of work this structure out. But I thought how fabulous it would be if I pretended to have found her secret long hidden memoirs, uh, in which for the first time ever, a woman of that age was actually allowed to say, or actually allowed herself to say what she actually thought about her life. You know, we today look back on those women and uh, we have a, we, we look back with rosy, rosy eyes because we don't have any sense of what they really felt about things. But if we put ourselves back in their position, they were like slaves. Mm. Uh, they, their lives must have been, in many cases, intolerable. You know, Jane Austen can't tell the truth, but if you read Jane Austen backwards and, and sort of ironically, you can see that beyond the page is disaster and nightmare of, you know, ending up married to the wrong guy, basically, and having no choice, having to marry because there was no way to, you know, put food in your mouth without a husband, basically. Mm. So, you know, I thought, let's let's resuscitate these women of the past. They were not the beautifully dressed, um, happy women that, that, that come out of, you know, particularly the television and film versions of things like Jane Austen, if we were in that world, we would find it intolerable. There's no real reason why they didn't find it intolerable too. So that was the story I wanted to tell.
And especially someone like Elizabeth MacArthur, who, you know, as you said, she spent these long periods of time when uh, when her husband was back in England. She must have been a formidable woman in terms of running her properties and looking after um, everything at home. She can't have been this vapid, em- empty vessel that would be happy with that life. That's exactly right. And that's the great mystery about her. I mean, a bit of a myth has grown up about Elizabeth MacArthur. People who've heard of her, which is not everybody, has this myth of her as the kind of devoted helpmate to her husband. So her husband's kind of issuing the orders and she's just obeying him. Um, in fact, I'm sure that's not true. She she ran the biggest, I mean, they were the richest couple in the colony uh, at the time when he lived. Um, so they had m- hundreds of acres of you know farmland covered with sheep. The workforce would have been convict, very difficult to manage probably. Um, and she had no, she had no recorded person who was giving her advice, at least for the certainly for the first absence. Um, now I'm quite sure, and of course I've invented uh, a couple of characters who must have actually helped her. So I've invented a man that I got rather keen on, actually, Mr. Hannaford, who is a convict who knows about sheep, who actually uh, supported Elizabeth MacArthur in her running of the place. And another woman, another convict, Mrs. Brown, who also um, made it possible for her, because the fact is, she couldn't have done it single-handedly. She must have, in fact, had help. And that's another silenced story. Somewhere in the background of her real story are people, there must have been, people who who helped her. Yes, some some of the periphery characters in this novel um, that I I really enjoyed were the women who were, in one way or another, in service to Elizabeth, um, when she's very much starved of female company and and she's trying to raise children at at a a very difficult place in a a colonial outpost um, all by herself. Um, you, you present these um, really intricate and fantastic women who are just on the on the periphery of her life as well. Yes, look, I think women, uh, you know, they're all nameless. Um, the real letters of Elizabeth MacArthur reveal that she actually had somebody that she calls my maid with me, with her, for all those years. Now, the maid never gets a name in all her letters and journals. Uh, but in fact, that maid would have been an incredibly important person. There may have even been more than one maid, one for the children and one as a sort of general helper. Um, as I say, Elizabeth was not, as is often thought, she was not a lady. She was a farmer's daughter. So I think she would not have found it difficult to relate to those women who were basically from a similar class to herself. Her only difference was that she was a bit educated. She could read and write. Um, she would have found, I think, friendship. I mean, in a way, it's a book about um, women supporting each other as mm. well as a lot of other, a lot of other things. And, and one of those things that hangs very heavy is the ambition of John MacArthur um, to make a gentleman of himself, to become a landed man. Um, tell us a little bit about the uh, John MacArthur of history books um, and... Uh, his, uh, you know, his his ambition is is so obvious, and he's he's uh, a little bit nasty. Um, that, that's very clear. But is is the is the temperament and the the kind of ease at which he makes enemies of of people around him? Is that something that's documented, or that, is that something that you've read between the lines? 
No, I think um, when you read John MacArthur's very copious um, correspondence that he's left behind, not to mention the correspondence of all the people who had to have to do with him, like the governors had to deal with him, mm. it is very clear he was a very clever but absolutely ruthless man who would employ charm if if charm was going to get what he wanted. If not, he would threaten, um, you know, law cases. He would bully he would um, sneak around, and of course he was constantly having duels. All that is on the record. And I think, you know, if you read the, the, the history books about John MacArthur, uh, they may not be quite as brutal about him as I am, but there's no question uh, that he was a very dangerous, clever, very clever, but very dangerous. And in my book, I've motivated that. I mean, there's nothing very interesting about baddies. You have to kind of get into their heads and think, well, why is this man doing this? And I've given to John MacArthur the sense that he was born, his father was a draper. So, you know, he sold fabric. So that also uh, is not upper class at all. And there was some money, there was enough money to buy him a, a, um, a commission in the army at the very lowest rank, but there was no other money. So I think John MacArthur, um, like a lot of people, felt it necessary to kind of um, invent a glorious background for himself. He claimed that the MacArthur's were descended from King Arthur, you know, back in the Mystics. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now that's that's also on the record. That's he he genuinely did make that claim. I didn't have to make that much up about John MacArthur. Oh, uh, that's that's good to know. Uh, he sounds like a he do well in the Republican Party or the Tories today. Oh, look, Donald Trump <laughs> does spring to mind. I have to say, <laughs> but he was an interesting man because I think he was also. I've I've tried to make him not altogether a baddie, but a man damaged by being sent away to a harsh boarding school at the age of six or seven. His mother died when he was at school, and he didn't know until he came home for the holidays. Uh, all this is also on the record. Um, born a draper's son, but had this desperate kind of pride. So his whole life was spent trying to make himself a gentleman, defend his honour in the way gentlemen were supposed to. That's why he had all those duels. Um, and above all, to make money and get land so that the gentleman, you know, the definition of a gentleman back then was that you owned land. Um, and so when he got to Australia, I'm sure he looked around and thought, right, this is my chance to genuinely make myself a gentleman and get land. Kay, can you talk a little now on the varying impressions among those in Elizabeth's circle on the Aboriginal peoples of, of uh, Sydney and, and, and later Parramatta, um, whose land that they're steadily taking and, and converting into um, agricultural pasture um, for the sheep, um, particularly Parramatta, which would have been the the sincere frontier of the time. Yeah, we, we think of Parramatta today as, as a metropolis, but uh, would have been nothing like that at the time. Um, yeah, what were the impressions of, um, of both Elizabeth, but, 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 uh, but John MacArthur and the, those around her? Well, as far as, uh, as far as I could see, John, I don't remember coming across anything in anything I read about him about his attitude to the Aboriginal people. so He doesn't even make a mention of them, does he? I don't think so. I wouldn't swear, wow. but I don't think so. Now, Elizabeth has a lovely letter. Soon after she arrived in Sydney, um, a, a local uh, Indigenous woman came to visit her with her baby, a woman called Daringa. And Elizabeth's letter is full of 
really warmth and even affection. I mean, they were both mothers. They wouldn't have had a lot in common, these two women. And uh, Elizabeth says she brought me this baby wrapped in a, a, a wrapper of paperbark. You know, Sydney people will know about soft, the soft fibre mm. of paperbark. It would make a reasonable little wrapper for a baby. And Elizabeth says, you know, I'll, I'll send you back a sample. This is in a letter to a friend in England. I fancy it is a type of mantle you do not see much of in Devon, which is true. So there was a kind of a warmth. She lists Aboriginal um, or Indigenous people's names and says, listen, how, listen to how beautiful these names are. So there's a real um, a sort of open curiosity, uh, respect, you know. So at that point at least... Her attitude was was very, I think, positive and interested. And then, of course, she met William Dawes. Now, William Dawes was with the he was also a soldier. He was an astronomer with the First Fleet. And at a certain point, and this is really where the book began, at a certain point, because she was a bit bored, she asked him for lessons in a few easy stars, as she put it. So he gave her some lessons. And then she says, again in a letter to a friend back home, um, I asked for the lessons, but I mistook my abilities and I blush for my error. Now, in the context of her otherwise totally bloodless, unphysical letters, that little phrase, I blush for my error, leapt out, it sort of mm. leapt out of the page with this kind of erotic voltage. <laughs> and I, this, is this is where the book began in 2001 or 2002. I thought, oh, okay, she fancied William Dawes. Um, and she, uh, so, and William Dawes, of course, was remarkable among all those people for having a very genuine warmth, curiosity and respectful attitude to the Indigenous people. He was the only person who genuinely tried to learn the language. And in his notebooks, he's left a record of his conversations with various Indigenous people who came to visit him and who, with whom he obviously had something something resembling a true friendship and certainly very respectful. So through Dawes, I think she would have um, learned very much more about how you might how you might um, respect difference. I think that's the thing that leaps out of William Dawes' story. He he could accept difference without judging it. He could respect it, he could find it fascinating, and he could be humble in the face of other people living their lives a different way. So I like to think that Elizabeth might have learnt that. And, of course, the other thing is, um, in terms of a novel, I mean, it's all very well to have a woman running a sheep station and so on, but uh, when I read those words, I blush for my error, I thought, aha, here is the emotional heart of this book. I'm going to give Elizabeth what I hope she had in real life, which is a nice relationship with a very nice man. One would hope. One, you know, you, you kind of, you, you you look back and you think that she probably deserved that and, and you hope that she had something for herself too. It would be not lovely to think so. I mean, of course, pre-contraception with a, with a husband away, it was running a gigantic risk. Mm -hmm. uh, um, or even with doors, of course, uh, but not so much a risk. If your husband is around, you, you know, it's possible to fudge things. But uh, <laughs> once he was off in England, she would have been a very brave woman if she'd actually, you know, had affairs with people. Um, who knows? I mean, there again, we have these stereotypes about the women of the past in which, you know, that wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen in a Jane Austen novel. 
Um, but, you know, they were people like us. They had, you know, they had desires and, you know, a longing for emotional closeness. So I think, I think there's an awful lot that we allow the mask to replace the reality mm. of those uh, people from the past. And this is, this is my, I mean, I don't pretend that this is a real memoir, obviously, but I do like to think if those women had been allowed to speak their minds, they might have said something like this. Mm. Certainly more real than the, le- the letters that she really sent. Yes, much more real than that. Yeah. Yes. I guess the the um the impression of of Dawes on on the First Nation people around him is is a is an exception. Um, there was a would have been a, a great deal of ignorance among the colony, the, the British colony, um, and then of course Elizabeth moves out to Parramatta, where frontier violence really really comes in earnest um, towards the end of this novel, and um, there's a great deal of bloodshed. Um, it's a it's a it's a tricky, um, it's a painful thing to kind of uh, consider and to to read. Um, and I, I read in the acknowledgments there's a great deal of consultation you did, Kate, um, uh, with respect to the indigenous aspects of your story. Um, what were you ignorant of going into the project, and what did you learn? Ah, uh, yes, a very good and big question. Look, to, to, to go back a step, with The Secret River, my project was to find uh, what my convict ancestor, uh, what his relationship was with the Indigenous people when he went out to a place on the Hawkesbury River, also the frontier at that time, um, and as the, as the family stories puts it, took up land. In other words, took mm. land that had belonged to the Indigenous people. So I had already in The Secret River... Uh, explored that fairly deeply. So now Elizabeth and John MacArthur did a similar thing. As you say, they went out to Parramatta and they took land that had belonged to the Baramatical people and they put a fence around it, sheep on it. Now, there is absolutely no record of their relationship or no reliable ones um, of how they interacted with the Indigenous people. And in fact, I've in a way avoided that in the book by ending it where I did. Uh, at the point when when this book, when this novel finishes, it is still possible for white and black to just kind of uneasily coexist on that land. But within a very few years, it was no longer possible. The, the, the first arrivals didn't think they were going to stay. That's the thing. Um, both soldiers and convicts all were convinced that they would stay here for a couple of years and then go back to England. But the next generation, uh, or even some of those people, suddenly realised that actually, no, they weren't going to go back, they were going to stay. And that meant uh, getting sheep and cattle and and corn growing. That meant taking land. Uh, And that's that's when the trouble happened. Now, I didn't want to retell the story of the Secret River because I had already, you know, I'd already tried to tried to tell something of that story. So what I've done here is take a slightly different tack. All the stories that on which we base the history of those times come, of course, from the um, colonists. They're the ones who left the written account. There may, in fact, be oral traditions among Aboriginal groups. But mostly we have to depend on 
the uh, European accounts of what happened. And uh, we tend to take those at face value because they're written down. We tend to believe them. It's that simple. We tend to believe words in print. And one of the things that I have been thinking and that I've given to Elizabeth MacArthur to think is let's have a look at some of those stories, some of those accounts of things that happened on the frontier, and let's turn it inside out. This is the this is the Whitefeller account. Let me try to imagine how else you might tell that story and how different it might be. So there's a particular thing called the Battle of Parramatta, um, which is a... a a, 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 a moment when, according to the uh, European version of this, a, a big group of Aboriginal people actually attacked in broad daylight, front on, the township of Parramatta. Now, Parramatta was a garrison town. It was hugely well defended. It was full of men with guns. So the idea that these otherwise extremely canny warriors would have uh, exposed themselves in that way struck me as very unlikely. So one of the things, so I've given this doubt to Elizabeth MacArthur. She she hears this account from her husband, who, of course, happens to be the military commander at Parramatta during that time. That is, in fact, historically true. And she thinks, well, maybe, maybe this is fiction too. This account that I'm hearing, it doesn't make sense. Is there another way that one might interpret those events? And, of course, there is. She sees that there's, a, there's another hidden history behind the one that's on paper. So there again, without wanting to, um, I mean, what I really wanted to do was to say in every context, we need to ask ourselves, who is telling this story and what's in it for them? Why are they telling it? And so I've, I've got Elizabeth MacArthur saying, do not believe too quickly. And that's, that's, in fact, while I was writing it, that's what the book was called, do not believe too quickly, because that's my real subject. In every context, think for yourself. Think, well, okay, is this is this really true? And can I think about another way of looking at it that might be a silenced story in there? I love it, and you've done and you've done so well, Kate. This this book is 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 just terrific. Um, I can't wait for more people to get out there and start reading it. Um, <laughs> there's one more thing I wanted to ask you about um, before we let you go, and, and that's the um, existing museum of Elizabeth Farm. Mm -hmm. um, have I, I imagine you spent a, a, a bit of time there um, uh, walking around and, and getting to know um, Elizabeth. Um, I have a memory of it um, from childhood because it's it's a it's a um, it's a very frequented stop for school excursions um, to learn about colonial history. Um, and I wonder how 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 well do you, you know with with everything that you've um, taken on board in this project? Uh, how how well do you think it presents it, and um, does it do a, a, a decent service to um, to Elizabeth and to the past? I think it's terrific, actually. Um, uh, yes, um, it's a house that's undergone a lot of uh, renovation and changes since Elizabeth lived there. Naturally, that's 200 years ago. Mm. The wonderful thing about it is that it is a living house. In other words, you can go in there and you are allowed to sit down on the chairs. You are allowed to sit at the desk, which is probably not the actual desk that Elizabeth MacArthur wrote the letters at, uh, but it's one very like it. So you're allowed to actually 
I spent many hours sitting around there, as you can, sitting in the in an armchair on the veranda in the sun. So you can actually pretend that you're living there. It is a most wonderful, wonderful place in that sense. Uh, out the back, you can see the kitchen. And again, you can go right in there and you can touch things and pick them up and, you know, try to work out how the how the things worked. Um, when the school groups come through, I don't know if this was so for you, a couple of school groups came through on my many visits there. Uh, they they give them, you know, the girls get little cloth caps to wear and the boys get, I don't know, I've forgotten what they give them, some kind of, you know, 18th century clothing. Mm. So they have some tiny sense, of, first of all, of how uncomfortable that must have been and how very difficult to do any proper work, in particularly for the women in those long skirts. Um so I think it's great. I'm very, very grateful to to the people who run that that place that they have made it so accessible and kind of human. And they also haven't tried to make uh, make it a grander place than it is. In later life, the MacArthur's did build a very grand mansion out at Camden, which in fact Elizabeth I think never probably liked much. And it was John MacArthur trying to build basically a, an English stately home in the middle of the Camden paddocks. Um, but Elizabeth Farm remains uh, a very comfortable kind of, we'd say now, middle class kind of house. So they're not pretending. John MacArthur believed that his generation should actually literally have aristocracy here in Australia. Um, and he obviously was going to be the head of that aristocracy. Uh, Elizabeth, I think, was not like that. And Elizabeth Farm reflects the the kind of... Um, um, you know, modesty of of uh, of of her of her life, and of the reality of those two people. Who, you know, a lot of people when I tell them I'm writing about Elizabeth MacArthur, they say, "Oh, Lady MacArthur," and I say, "No, no, no. She was not a lady. She was a farmer's daughter. Let's remember that. It's very important to her character." And really, I mean, Australia at that time in 1793 was no place for an aristocratic lady. It was, you know, the, the climate is not an English climate. The, you know, the facilities were not what uh, an English lady would have been accustomed to. No, that's right. The women who came out, she had, a, oh, I suppose, about a, a year, maybe a year and a half, kind of as the only uh, genteel woman of the colony. And the ones who came out then, they were married to naval officers or, you know, or, or you know, captains in the army. So they were... Uh, they were educated, they're certainly literate, they were not working class women, but they were not aristocrats and they were out here because they needed to make money. Nobody mm. came to New South Wales really voluntarily. Not no, why would you? That's right. The soldiers wanted Completely to... Completely unsuited to their lifestyle. That's right. It would have been so uncomfortable. When I tried yeah. to imagine what the first house that they would have lived in in Sydney Cove must have been like, I mean, it must have had a dirt floor because until mm. you got organised to have saw pits and stuff, you would not have had a wooden floor. You might have been able to put a few bits of stone down to make a, uh, you know, some kind of flagging. But it would have, everything about it would have been so uncomfortable. Uh, no place for a lady, that's for sure. Okay, what will you write next, do you know? Ah, well, look, um, my family is a subject close at hand that always seems to me... Uh, to open up into a wider world. It's like my, my family is pretty ordinary. You know, my an ancestors were convicts and so on. 
Um, so in, the, in that sense, my family represents Australian history at that level. So my grandmother's story, my grandmother was born in 1882. Um, she came from a long line of illiterate people. Her grandfather was the convict. She was the first generation to get an education and therefore to have choices. She was the first woman uh, and all women of that generation were the first women to have any notion of choice about their lives. So I'm quite interested in that. It's like a hinge around which history swings, the moment when ordinary people, men and women, were given just that little tiny bit of public education that enabled them to have choices that none of their forebears would have had. So that sounds a bit serious, but actually my, my grandmother, who I vaguely remember, she was a very, very difficult, very cranky, very lively um, woman, full of initiative and um, mad ideas. So I think she's pretty interesting. So I'm hoping there's a book. It sounds wonderful. Can't wait for those mad ideas. Yeah. <laughs> Kate, thank you so much for spending time with us today. And um, once again, congratulations on, on such a terrific novel. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you both. And you can order A Roommate of Leaves by Kate Grenville, along with all of her other novels and nonfiction at booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces, and more. Or, if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.